0: Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology.
1: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast?
0: Hello, I am Michael Calori. I'm an editor here at Wired, and you are listening to the Gadget Lab podcast. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Arielle Pardes. Hello. And Lauren Go. Hello. This is the podcast where we take you through the tech news of the week and break down the gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about. But it's not just about gadgets. It's about our relationship with them and how they impact our lives.
2: Particularly... Robots. Everybody loves a good robot. That's what we're going to talk about this week because Ariel and our colleague Matt Simon have a story this week about Amazon's latest product unveiling. And for some reason, it has reminded people of the Metalhead Robot Nightmare episode of Black Mirror. Not that I'm being alarmist or anything, but Amazon Warehouse Robots. Anyway, Ariel, quickly tell us what the story's about. The
3: story is about Amazon's latest plan for shepherding your Prime packages around. It's not a bird. It's not a plane. It's a delivery robot with six wheels that rolls around on the sidewalk and drops things off at your doorstep.
2: And has an adorable name, too. It is called Scout. 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 Uh, Scout. What could possibly go wrong?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, we'll find out later when we talk about that and we bring Matt on in the show in the second part of the show. Uh, but first, let's go over the news of the week. I will get started. Are you ready for some Apple news?
3: Always. Of course.
0: All right. This is different kind of Apple news. It's about cars. This week, CNBC reported that Apple has laid off more than 200 workers in its autonomous car division. Project Titan, which by our best guess has been around since about 2015 or so, is Apple's internal project for creating autonomous driving technology. Uh, At one point a couple of years ago, Project Titan's payroll had ballooned to at least 1,000 people, though since we know relatively little about what goes on what goes on inside the company, because Apple is so notoriously secretive, it's tough to say what percentage of Project Titan's team was actually cut this week. The staff reduction is most likely the result of new leadership within the Apple division. Last year, the company hired a Tesla VP and formal Apple employee himself named Doug Field to join the project. Everyone's best guess is that there is some new structure being put into effect within Project Titan, the project that Apple called in a statement this week The most ambitious machine learning project ever.
2: That is such an Apple statement. Yeah. It's like the most blank ever. Yeah. So hyperbolic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And accompanied by a a cool glassy soundtrack and the dulcet (laughs) tones of, um, what's his name? Johnny Ive. Uh, I think it's really interesting that Apple continually refers to this as a machine learning project and a you know a software project. Just because for a long time when Apple said we're getting into car- well they never said they were getting into cars but it became apparent they were getting into cars. A lot of people assumed that they were going to be doing manufacturing, mm-hmm. you know, and there were there were sort of rumors that they would be teaming up with a major manufacturer like an Audi or a BMW or Mini or something like that to create, to create a Apple branded version of the car that was filled with Apple technology. But no, it turns out that they see the future of Apple in cars as autonomous driving tech, imaging tech, systems, things like that.
2: Another thing that Apple said, too, when uh, CNBC reached out for comment, some of these people are being moved to projects in other parts of the company where they're expected to support machine learning and other initiatives across all of Apple. So that's interesting because there are clearly layoffs, but there also seems to be a little bit of a reallocation going on. Yeah. And um, who knows? Maybe some of those people will help make Siri better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, that's probably the idea, right? You, you do all of this work in machine learning just to make you know, driving work, and then you figure out that there's actually a lot of other applications for that sort of knowledge elsewhere inside the company.
3: Absolutely. Hmm. Well, also this week in the social world, Twitter is testing a new feature that would make it easier to see who originally started a thread of tweets. Uh, this is a tag that shows up as original tweeter. And Thanks. it's uh, <laughs> so far it's rolled out to a small percentage of Twitter users on mobile. The idea here is to add more context to conversations. So, like, if one of Mike's tweets goes viral, it, it would, would
0: help- never happen.
3: Okay, <laughs> let me start over. If one of my tweets goes viral <laughs> again, then. This tag would help to distinguish my replies from everyone else in the thread. It's kind of like the original poster tag on Reddit, which is actually very useful when threads start to get very long and cumbersome. Um, It's nice to see who the person is who originally posed the question or posted the link or what have you. So it's a very simple feature, um, but it follows one of Twitter's broader initiatives, which is to improve public conversation on the platform. How do you do that? Well, to Twitter, one way is to add more context to these conversations. It could also help to play down some of the weird spam like the uh ethereum scam bots that seem to reply to like every elon musk tweet thread um <laughs> as always though people are pointing out that this is perhaps not the greatest priority for a site that remains riddled with harassment spam and you know nazis um
1: right.
3: I, I love that every time twitter Announces a new feature like this, um, an executive like Jack will will tweet about it, and you'll see a hundred replies that say, "But what about the Nazis?" Um, and I think this is a good example of something that seems like good and fine and useful and simple and easy to roll out, but um, it's kind of like small potatoes in the grander scheme of what's going to make Twitter feel healthy. Yeah.
2: yeah, I definitely want to know who the original tweeter is of those Ethereum scam bots <laughs> that are replying <laughs> to everything Jack says. Uh. I mean, no, I mean, Twitter's goal at the end of the day is, you know, the, Jack has taken a very hands-off approach to a lot of the vitriol and harassment that happens on the platform jack being jack dorsey of course and by the way i recommend reading casey newton's newsletter about that this this whole topic this week because he really sort of underscores how there's been a lot of talk going on at twitter and not a whole lot of action mm-hmm. so to me putting an original tag on a tweet is sure maybe it's a it's a great way to like at least bubble up some of the conversation uh, within a long, confusing thread. But it's still like Twitter's ultimate goal is to keep people on the platform and keep people having conversations in the platform. And frankly, people fighting on Twitter is great for Twitter.
0: Yeah. I wonder if uh, being the original tweeter will give anybody any sort of sense of conversational weight when they're arguing with people on Twitter. Like, well, I have the upper hand here because (laughs) I am the original tweeter. I am the OG. But, you know, as far as, like, the what about the Nazis argument, I I wonder about that a lot because what is Twitter supposed to do? Are they supposed to, like, drop everything and fix that problem? Or are they supposed to fix that problem while also making the platform easier to use for everybody? I,
3: I think the latter. But the reason people bring it up over and over is that Twitter has been so... <laughs>
0: They've been really bad.
3: <laughs> is, ha, Twitter has been very vocal about wanting to make healthy conversation a priority. They say this all the time they've uh, specifically built a division of people whose job is to make twitter feel quote unquote healthy and yet they've they've done what seems to be relatively little in developing features that aid that in a real and meaningful way right and i yeah. think it's it's really hard to see some of these smaller initiatives as being part of that plan when people are still facing so much harassment right it's like hard to see how like <laughs> this makes the, the space feel nice yeah if you're constantly checking you know replies to find people harassing you
2: mm-hmm. that is the truth well I look forward to my next harassing tweet being from an original tweeter <laughs> <laughs> on Wednesday Chinese technology company Xiaomi it's such a fun word to say mm. Xiaomi showed off Xiaomi showed off a new folding phone concept on the Chinese microblogging site Weibo. The folding phone was unlike some of the other concepts we have seen recently, and there have been a fair amount of them, because this one actually folds in three, according to the video that was posted on Weibo which also featured company co-founder Bin Lin. Um, Now, rumors of a Xiaomi folding phone first surfaced earlier in January um, on phone leaker Evan Blass's Twitter feed, but even Evan said at the time it wasn't entirely clear if that video was real or not. Now, Xiaomi has confirmed to news outlets that it is in fact real, this concept is real, though we have no idea when it will launch. But this is definitely part of a larger trend we are seeing, and that is super weird phones In 2019.
3: Yeah, Lauren, you wrote a great story about this on Wired.com this week, um, in which you point to some of these trends, um, the folding displays being chief among them. Um, And you make this great point, which is that one of the reasons we're seeing this is just because phone makers... Can do it now, you know. Like a, a folding display has been a concept that's existed for years, but now suddenly it's possible to do it in a way that feels a little bit more faithful to what people actually want to hold in their hands. And because it's now possible, people are saying, "What the heck? Let's just try it." Um, but there's this other thing too, which is that phone sales have started to slow down a little bit. You don't sort of have to upgrade your iPhone every year because the one you bought two years ago is almost as good and and looks almost the same. So there's this secondary incentive that we're sort of seeing from a lot of these phone makers, which is that one way to get someone to buy a new phone is throw something completely bizarre and novel
2: and see if people pick it up. Yep, that's exactly right. And in fact, you covered the Samsung folding phone announcement back in, I think, November Mm -hmm. it was at this point. And the executives, you you wrote this, the executives there said, we think the technology is ready, basically, because we've seen folding phone concepts for several years now, like they show they fold it once and you go, Oh, okay. Or we've seen curved displays, obviously, like at a much larger scale. But those are things that don't need to bend back and forth thousands of times during their lifespan. So when you start talking about that, the fact that you could potentially own a phone for two years and folding it becomes a part of your daily routine. We still don't know if it can because we haven't actually like owned one of these yet, but that's part of it. And then to your point, the second point is is just about maturation in the smartphone market. You know, right now, a lot of people in the world have smartphones. And, yeah, there's less of a need to upgrade because they all have pretty decent cameras and pretty decent chipsets and feature matchings, you know, feature match. How am I describing this? I don't know. They all have the same features.
0: <laughs> which is which is what you want, right? Like, as a consumer, that's what you want. You want to have something that works great for a long time, mm-hmm. you know? It's like your car.
2: Yeah, but what if it could fold, Mike? <laughs> right. What if the camera could it's... pop out, Mike? <laughs> what I if just... you could take your car and fold it into a motorcycle parking space? <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, that would be cool. <laughs> but I, I just, I, I feel like there's nothing wrong with what we have right now. Like, I, the notch does not bother me. Does anybody else have no, a phone with a notch No, I completely
2: agree. I will admit that when people, bloggers mostly... <laughs> some of whom we know first started saying the notch i was literally like what is the notch what i mean i know i'm looking at this black cutout on the phone and i know when i turn it sideways that sometimes apps aren't optimized for it but that you know it's really not that big of a deal
0: no and you forget about it immediately you
2: yeah know, you, you forget get about very it very accustomed to 20
0: it. minutes mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're like somebody points at your phone and goes ew and you're like what oh yeah that <laughs> thing yeah it doesn't even matter that did happen to me once.
2: Oh man. Ew. Yeah, a friend ew. of mine just
0: stuck his finger on my phone and went ew.
2: Well, I wonder what they're going to say when they see your hole punched phone this year. Oh, Cuz yeah, that's right. going to be the new thing.
0: Oh boy. Yeah, it never ends.
2: It's going to get interesting.
0: All right. Well, we'll have a lot more to say about phones in about a month when Mobile World Congress, or I guess it's just it's now just called MWC Barcelona, is that what it's called now? Uh, When that happens. That uh, is correct. At the end of February, we'll have a lot more to say about phones. We will indeed. But for now, let's talk about delivery robots.
2: This week, Amazon did as Amazon does. It suddenly dropped a web page for its new six-wheeled delivery robot, Scout. And Ariel and our colleague Matt Simon had the story. Matt, welcome to the pod.
4: And thank you for having me. bittersweet because I've been here for so many years and this is the first time I've been on the podcast.
2: What? (laughs) It's the first time you've earned it.
4: First time. Well, I guess that's probably true. But uh, yeah, thank you.
2: So you're one of those people who can actually thank the robots for job security because you're getting more opportunities as a result of the bots.
4: For the moment, yes. um, Until they become smarter than me inevitably because I'm not very smart. And take all
2: of our jobs as journalists. Okay. What is this thing? Let's talk about it.
4: It is nothing new. Uh, except for Amazon. So delivery robots have been roaming the streets out in the very real world for several years now. Uh, a couple of different companies have been doing this. they've clocked hundreds of thousands of miles with these things already, which is uh, very impressive because it's a very difficult problem to get robots to navigate the real world, much less the absolute chaos that is the sidewalk. So when we did a, a story last year about one of these companies called Marble in San Francisco, we followed around with a video camera and like literally the first five or 10 seconds uh, we're in a corner in the mission which is a very vibrant neighborhood in san francisco there was like a busker and a dude selling stuff on the sidewalk and the robot comes jamming along and slams on the brake just before it hits a couple of dogs and the dogs are like what is this? I've never experienced a robot almost running me down before. And that's the experience that all of us now have, right? This is a, a new world where we're surrounded more and more by robots, like delivery robots. But this is this is Amazon finally getting into the game, and it makes perfect sense because they are uh, an e-tailer. Do they call them e-tailers? Is that? Um- yeah. I'm not a business. Sure, reporter. I think I'm a it's fine. Yeah, I was gonna say that
2: sounds really like analysty, and I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah, you should you should now talk about like value prop and market saturation I just, I just and things it, so like I'm... e-tailer. <laughs> yeah, so this is all part of Amazon's attempt to solve the last mile problem. Uh, I think a lot of us know what that is, but explain what that is and, and how robots fit like unique, into this one sort of unique area of the last mile problem.
4: Last mile is that poor delivery person uh, in the truck who has to pick up all those packages individually and run them up to your house. Um, I guess last mile technically is coming from the distribution center, which is in town, to your house. Um, but that includes the poor delivery driver. So that's an inefficient process, right? Um, ideally, you would have robots doing this work on their own autonomously uh, maybe not necessarily coming from the distribution center, but on a truck and then flying out as drones or rolling as these uh, new robots from Amazon would theoretically be doing. Um, but there's some issues there because it's, it hasn't been determined yet that this is going to be economical, uh, especially in the short term. So And there's all kinds of technical issues as well. They can't go upstairs. Um, they can't leave a package for you uh, if you're not there because you have to put in a pin in order to open the container to get your package out. So there's a bunch of, of technical challenges to it. And, again, these are, these are early days, and Amazon is very late to this. So it'll be interesting to see them play catch-up um, to solve this very real problem. Uh, as far as problems go, it's a very small problem. Like people have real problems that aren't last mile Delivery, um, But for companies like Amazon, it certainly is. Right. Yeah. Issue. And
3: it's it's worth mentioning that Amazon has tried to approach this problem from many different directions prior to introducing a sidewalk delivery robot. So um, five or six years ago, they introduced their drone delivery pilot program, which we haven't seen a ton from, um, but is one of the ways that they're allegedly working on figuring out how to deliver things better. They've done stuff working with gig workers. They had this program... Um, to get people to create their own sort of last mile businesses that would partner with Amazon. Um, But it's an important problem for them as a company because the whole business model is that you deliver things faster, cheaper, and with less resources. So a sidewalk bot is sort of one of many ways they're trying to tackle it.
2: And I'm sure people who have their packages swiped during the holidays would love the idea of having to enter in a pin into a robot to get your package. Mm -hmm.
4: Robots don't steal things. Yeah,
0: that happens to me all the time. Um, in front of my house the, the delivery drivers always leave stuff there I'd love to be able to go down and plug in a pin and get it mm-hmm. but it seems to me like you know because packages are things that we're used to being delivered when we're not around something like this really makes probably to my mind anyway makes more sense for food delivery is that is that smart mm-hmm. thing to say should I say that out loud
4: that's a super smart thing it's funny you should say that it, it is very <laughs> smart um, so as I mentioned the story that we did when we followed one around um, this is the company called Marble they partnered with Yelp 24, um, there's a place in the mission near where you live probably um, that does uh, Don't dox me on my podcast <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know your exact address otherwise I would totally give it But uh, this, uh, so the idea was to have this robot pick up small orders and instead of somebody getting in a car with a, a burrito or whatever and driving it two miles away uh, you would have this this robot go do that so, um, but there's a lot of challenges with that. It's, it's not as easy as um, just putting a burrito in a robot and saying, hey, go along. So, what most of these delivery robots are doing, and, and Amazon's is no exception, is you have an actual human operator behind them with a remote control to take over when something like it almost runs over a dog happens. <laughs> That's the fail safe. Um, and then the extension of that is what you're actually seeing. It's a trend now that these companies and other robotics companies are developing these call centers where you have human. This weirdly dystopian idea: a bunch of humans in a call center that are babysitting robots. So they have cameras on the robots and they're watching what they're doing. Uh, this is this is in particular for something called. Um, uh, I'm totally blanking on the name. There's a there's a particular robot for hospitals where it roams around, but sometimes it gets stuck. People put carts out. It can't figure out what it needs to do. Human takes over uh, and wheels it around remotely. So it's creating this weird job ecosystem where humans are now babysitting robots until the robots become smart enough to take over. Um, All the jobs um, and, and run around on their own and deliver burritos and then maybe end the human race eventually. So,
2: the chaperone, so that's lovely. So, the chaperones that you mentioned in your story are all remote. They're not physically showing up with the robots and like walking, you know, 100 yards behind them and performing other tasks
4: while the robots do other things. For Amazons, there is a physical person walking behind it. Okay. Right? I'm, I'm pretty sure.
2: Okay, interesting. That was, that
4: was said in, in their press release. And that's, that's what most of these companies have been doing. And that's actually mandated by law in San Francisco. So Marble um, was doing this without a permit for several years, and San Francisco was like, yeah, hey, about that. Not so much because, uh, you know, it's not great for everybody on the streets if you're disabled. Um, the elderly might not like these things jamming around sidewalks, It just makes it potentially a much dangerous place, even though these robots are getting much more sophisticated as they escape the lab and, and the the factory. Um, but you have to have somebody behind it to, to take over in, in case something goes wrong, which kind of defeats the purpose of a delivery robot, at least in the short term. But um, these things are learning as, as they're scooting around the streets so one day they'll they'll be fine on their own but in the meantime it's it's this very interesting job of human who babysits robots
3: yeah i think that sort of feeds into something that matt and i wrote in our story which is that there are sort of three big challenges ahead when you're developing this kind of technology and one is as matt said the technical limitations, right? It's really, really hard to get these robots to function in a chaotic environment. It's basically like taking the challenges of self-driving cars and then making them more challenging because there are no stop signs, there are no street lanes, there's no order, um, there are dogs and buskers and cracks in the sidewalk. Um, but then besides the technical challenges, there are like city-wide challenges, um, which is to say... Some of these cities are not very receptive to the idea of delivery robots. Amazon is right now just rolling out Scout in one county just north of their headquarters in Seattle called Snohomish County. And I think they only have six robots at the moment. So it's a very, very small, limited rollout, which I think is necessary at this point because if you try to do something too big, too fast, take up too much sidewalk real estate, um, city governments get a little squeamish about it so they're being sort of very limited in that respect and then the the third challenge that we mention is a design one which is people don't really know how to interact with robots on the street and so every time you're designing something that's meant to live in that environment you have to make some interesting decisions about like does it look friendly does it look kind of scary like is it anthropomorphic um, and you have to tow this interesting line between having something that's like friendly enough that people don't want to kick it. There are lots and lots of stories of people kicking delivery robots. Um, but it has to be not friendly enough that a kid wants to come up and play with it because that gets in the way of it doing its job. So you're seeing kind of like multi-tiered Challenges in rolling something like this out.
2: Right. Ariel, you wrote about Instacart's, excuse me, Postmates. I keep saying Instacart, but it's Postmates, a delivery robot serve a couple of months ago. And that one has like literal googly eyes.
3: Yeah, that's an interesting choice. Matt and I talked a lot about that when I was reporting that story. And we both found it really interesting that Postmates decided to go for something so completely anthropomorphic. It has um, eyes that blink. It plays music, like really cheerful music as it's on delivery. Um, It's like bright yellow. It looks almost like a kid's toy truck. And um, Postmates says that was all very deliberate, that they wanted something that sort of inspires cheer in people as they see their... Delivery robot marching down the street to deliver their burrito, um, but it does come with with a trade off, which is that like people do stop these things in the street, and like kids do want to play with it, and like it runs the risk of being a little bit like silly and trivial um, for something that's supposed to be part of the labor force.
4: Kids are one of the biggest problems in robotics. Like, no <laughs> joke. This is this. They, there was a really good study out of Japan a couple of years ago where these researchers put a, a fairly sophisticated robot in a mall. And let kids come up to it just to see what the kids would do. Um, and the kids harassed it. Like they called it names. Like they called it stupid. And they kicked it and they punched it. And it's like that's, that's one end of the spectrum. But uh, you know, as regards the anthropomorphizing these, these machines, it's very tempting. Um, especially because the human brain just does that naturally. we We project this agency onto these robots, which have no agency. It's just ones and zeros. So with the design decisions like with the googly eyes, you run the risk of creating these, very strange and novel relationships between robots and humans that we don't know how to deal with yet. Um, Dealing with sophisticated robots of any kind is a very, very weird thing. I do it a lot as part of my job and I'm still not used to it. Uh, You have to adjust for every kind of robot, whether it's a humanoid or something like a a delivery robot with eyeballs. So designers are, I think, struggling a lot. And I I found that was interesting in your story to, to think about why put eyes on it? Because that then invites kids to come up and hug it, and it's a it's a machine that has a job. You don't want kids to get in its way. At the same time, you don't want it to be off-putting. Like you don't want to you want it paint to, You don't want it, it to look
2: like the the robot from Metalhead.
4: Exactly. Right.
2: Which is yes. terrifying. Yes. Or you know, Boston Dynamics puts out these videos where people say that they are simultaneously very cool and terrifying. Exactly. Right.
0: So these things, these the scout the Amazon rolling robot they're going to have to cross streets right yeah so people are just going to start running them down in their cars (laughs) like i guarantee you it's going to be crossing the street and somebody's like oh there's somebody's amazon package boom and just run it down
4: yeah or stealing them so a lot of these other companies have i'm sure amazon has thought of this but they have anti-theft devices in the sense that the cameras are always on so if you pick one up and put it in your pickup and drive (laughs) off with it they're going to know where it's going of course have gps on it um, but As a
2: journalist, I might be tempted to do that. Yeah,
4: yeah, and that's that's. I mean, that plays into the animosity that people have for robots. So uh, if it's moving slowly down the street, it's like it's in my way, um, and that is another design challenge: is how do you create a machine that goes at the appropriate pace, yet knows how to pick up its pace? Like if somebody's walking in front of it, not fast enough, how do you know when it's time to order the robot to speed around that person? Um, and if it's an elderly person, are you going to piss the elderly person off and get in trouble with the city when that person goes and complains. So really complicated design decisions, but also this very interesting frontier in human-robot interaction of actually getting along with these machines or conversely not getting along with them. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like
0: the streets are rude enough already with just humans on them.
4: Yes, I don't think we need any help. But, you know, you mentioned the, the crossing the streets thing, and, and Ariel mentioned this a little earlier. That you know the sidewalks are pure chaos. The streets are somewhat ordered. You have a crosswalk. It has lines, ideally painted. The robot can follow that. So this is a, a huge challenge design-wise that it does have to deal with cars in a way, it has to deal with stoplights and things like that. But all it's also most of its time it's on the sidewalk, dodging dogs and cracks in the sidewalk and just any number of things. It's it's a huge problem in robotics, and it's actually very interesting that. So many companies are already tackling it uh, in these very early days of robots in the real world. Um, this is the big challenge, and once you crack this, that of course opens up all these other windows into other problems in robotics.
2: Does it matter that Amazon is behind other companies who startup companies that have released these bots? I mean, Amazon is so big. Is this are they just like Apple, where they can wait and bide their time and effectively use other companies as R and D, and then and then enter a market and dominate?
4: Yeah, they'll just buy one of these startups. They did the same thing with Kiva, which was the robotics company that now has, that makes the robots, well, they subsumed it, the robots that run around their warehouses. Same principle. Like, they didn't create their own real robotics program. They bought somebody. They'll do the same thing with probably one of these other startups. And then um, another thing that came up in our story was the interfacing with drones. So they haven't said much about the drone program since they announced it several years back. But do these machines start getting along so do you have a fleet of drones that are somehow working with a fleet of rolling robots in tandem Um, which is going to be a huge problem in and of itself because it's difficult to get drones to communicate with each other especially if you have google or any other e-tailer flying their drones around the city how do you get them all talking and uh, nasa of all entities is actually working on a system to keep drones in a Common language to keep them communicating, but it's not hard to see a future where Amazon attacks this on multiple fronts flying drones um, sidewalk drones uh, There's a new class of robot coming out. That's a combination of both um, a bipedal robot with thrusters So no wow <laughs> yeah, No, it is it's happening. Uh, it's a it's in research and development right now. um, But the idea there is that you can have a bipedal robot that could theoretically get upstairs, and use thrusters to uh, balance itself out. And also, if it wants to, to stay stationary in one place, a drone has to expend a tremendous amount of energy, um, just hovering in place. And you have a bipedal robot with thrusters, it can put its feet on the ground and kind of balance that way with the thrusters and save a little bit of energy. So It could be, first off, we see drones working with rolling robots, but then those two merge into this unholy kind of new robot. It'll be interesting. That'll be a long ways down the road, but that's where the research is headed.
3: I want to add one thing um, to answer Lauren's question about whether or not it matters that Amazon is behind, um, which is that we don't know a ton at the moment about what Amazon's R&D has been like. They haven't shared a lot of information about how they built Scout. I think it's worth mentioning that it looks very similar to the delivery robots made by a startup called Starship. Um, it's very similar sh- like shape. It looks like a little cooler with six wheels, seems to function similarly. So it, it's, it's not impossible that Amazon has been working with startups to develop this. Um, but what they have that's really valuable that a lot of these um, early sidewalk robot startups don't have is a ton of information about how deliveries work. And that is super, super valuable in trying to get these things functioning in the real world and actually dropping off packages. So it seems like perhaps not such a drawback that Amazon is late to the game because they're bringing something really valuable and can easily partner or buy or subsume a startup that has the tech sort of worked out and and combine that with what they already know.
2: Amazon taking over the world. (laughs) Uh, We're going to go to recommendation shortly, and my recommendation is going to be learn to code because we're all going to be programming (laughs) robots for a living. No, that's not really my recommendation, but we probably should get to them, yeah?
0: Yeah, I think now is about the time. Should we have our guests go first?
4: Sure. I I would recommend a fantastic book I'm reading called uh, The Cultural History of Darkness. So um, this is by the same author, Nina Edwards, um, who wrote The Cultural History of Buttons. (laughs) <laughs> um, and weeds as well. Weeds plural, not weed singular. Um, but it's a really interesting, I'm, I'm only partway through it, but it's a really interesting look at how humanity frames darkness. So through like art, um, but also psychologically, what does the darkness mean? And I think that's um, important to consider once the machines plunge everything into darkness. It'll be our world. It's just pure darkness pure darkness, like the matrix. So I'm, I'm researching is what I'm doing in anticipation, but I, I highly recommend it. It's, it's a really interesting, um, it's just interesting to think about darkness in a world that is very rarely dark with smartphones. And I sound like an old person. I apologize. But uh, With all the devices glowing around us, I think it's important to uh, embrace the darkness.
3: That is so extremely on brand for you, Matt. Oh, I nice. love it.
4: For those of you who don't know me, I'm a little dark.
0: <laughs> um, Ariel, why don't you go next? What's yours?
3: Um, I would also like to recommend a book. Um, this one, perhaps with a bit more levity. It is Valley of Genius by Adam Fisher. Um, it came out last year and it's an oral history of Silicon Valley. So, Adam, who is a longtime journalist, he's worked at Wired, he's written for many publications about technology in Silicon Valley. Um, he spent a long time interviewing a lot of the people who helped to create the industry that we now think about and write about and live in um and the whole book is told in quotes so it's really interesting to read an interesting look at how a lot of things we take for granted today started um and i think just for anyone who's interested in sort of stories of the wired world a great foundational text to to sort of meet the people and hear the stories of how it all began
0: that's great. Adam Fisher, good good dude. Good mm-hmm. writer?
3: Well, none of it is, is written, which is so interesting. Um, like, like knowing that he's a beautiful writer, it makes the book <laughs> sort of uh, bittersweet in a sense because it's literally a, just an oral history. So you're just reading quote, 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 with absolutely no editorializing.
0: Oh, very cool. Uh, sh- should I go next? Yeah. All right. So... Two years ago on this podcast, I recommended a mailing list called Recommendo. uh, And it's a mailing list that sends you cool products and services and like little tips and life hacks every week. I think it was like on Sundays or Saturdays or Sundays. I can't remember. Anyway, uh, the people behind it are Kevin Kelly. Also former Wired executive editor, founding editor, and editor emeritus I don't know what we call him now. But, you know, he's like he's big papa around here. Um, Mark Frauenfelder, who also used to work here and has run Boing Boing for a very long time. And Claudia Dawson, friend of the brand. Um, the three of them assemble these, these fun lists, uh, and now, after having done it for a couple of years, they have enough to fill a book. So I'm recommending the book. It's a slim paperback. It's $10, and it's called Recommendo, 500 Brief Reviews of Cool Stuff. And uh, you flip through it, and it has categories like your closet, your workshop, gadgets, your phone, photo, your browser which is things like you know browser extensions and different things you can download for your browsing experience, money, security. Um, they recommend podcasts. Uh, they recommend books. They recommend TV shows. It's really incredible. Each little pocket review is about 100 words. It's personal and it has a QR code. So if you have a QR code reader on your phone, and let's be honest, who doesn't? You can just take a picture of the QR code, and it'll send you to the link that would have originally accompanied the review in the newsletter. Um, can
2: you open that and just read a random one right now? I actually
0: have—I actually have one selected. Okay, uh, and it's particularly selected because it's of interest to Ariel. Uh, this is something that Kevin Kelly contributed to the book. So here it is. Oh
3: good! Oh good!
0: It's a tip. It's called "Countdown to Your Death." <laughs> I hacked up a death countdown clock to show me how many days I have left to live. I went to the actuarial tables for life expectancy to determine how old typical person my age would live to and then input that date into the date countdown website. It shows me that I have an estimated 6,300 days to live. Each day that small sum really focuses me. By the way, your longevity increases over time because of science, so every few years you need to adjust your due date.
2: That is amazing. That's not a lot. Six thousand and is not a lot.
0: That's right. That's
2: what it's supposed to make you think.
0: And Kevin Kelly says it it makes him focus every single day.
4: What if you get hit by a bus?
2: Well, <laughs> you just wipe the clock, throw that's, it out the window.
0: That's not part of the actuarial table, though. Oh, okay.
2: Right, right. That's a good one.
0: Uh, so yeah, recommendo ten bucks. It's a it's a slim book. Of course, you can probably get it all online, but it's kind of nice to have it just to flip through, like you know, while you're. Sitting around the house, or maybe thinking of a gift for somebody.
2: Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Well, you guys recommended books, and I'm not this week, so I guess I am. I don't know. I'm a loser. <laughs> last, last week we <laughs> all last week it. we all recommended something to watch, and now you're all recommending something to read. Anyway, I am recommending. The Google Home Hub, which is something that we wrote about and reviewed late last year. It came out last fall. And I am finally, and I've seen it in demos. Um, I think we've had one sitting around the office. But, and I saw a demo of it when I was in Vegas at CES. This is the first time that I've used it this week. And I've set it up on my nightstand. And the reason why I'm recommending it in particular is for nighttime routines. Because... So far, it has been the most intuitive experience I've had with any type of virtual assistant when it comes to bedtime. It's just like, it's really clever. So first of all, Google Assistant has gotten to the point, for those of you who don't know, where you don't even have to pause. You can just say, hey, Google, what what's the weather? Hey, Google, who's in the Super Bowl? There's no there's no latency. Your phone's probably going off. Sorry about that. All of you who are listening on Android, I'm sorry if your phone went off. Um, and whereas, like, with other virtual assistants, you feel like there has to be this pause, and it feels very long and pregnant, and then the translation's always not always great. Um, so you could just say to this thing, like, hey, Google, um, night, And it immediately responds with, what time do you like to set your alarm for? And you just say the time. It gets that it's supposed to be a.m. It automatically starts playing nighttime sounds for you, country sounds, crickets chirping, that sort of thing. Um, you can say to it, hey, Google, like, go go to sleep, right? And it shuts down. It also has an ambient light sensor so that when you dim the room, it responds by dimming the screen um, because obviously there are a lot of concerns about how blue light is impacting your sleep patterns. Um yeah, and then when it wakes up the morning, when it wakes you up in the morning, it's like just a very sort of gradual gentle thing as opposed to feeling like a clanging alarm. So I will say that so far, I have really enjoyed having this by my bedside. And for those of you who are concerned about privacy because that's a very real thing and as soon as I brought this thing home, my partner was like, "What is this doing in the bedroom?" There is no camera. <laughs> And there's a physical switch to turn the microphone off as well. So if you are concerned about having something in the bedroom that is internet connected, which by the way you already have with your phone, for those of you living in denial, uh, this thing is like pretty much a cameraless tablet that can have its mic turned off.
0: So uh, you you like the um, the the nighttime display on it?
2: Yeah, I do. Well, right now I have it set to photo rotation through my Google my Google photos. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm enjoying that as well. Surprisingly, like you go through this process initially where you select faces that you want to see in your photos and you can say to it, show me a photo album of my cat. And it's pretty good. It's AI is pretty good at detecting a cat. Um, So right now it's this rotation of my photos until I say goodnight to it. And then once I say goodnight to it, it goes into this nighttime mode and starts playing the, you know, the like ambient noise. I don't know what you'd call them. Like the sleep sounds, nighttime yeah. sounds. Am-
0: ambient noises. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, it's really it's really quite nice. I think
0: so I when I had it in my house, I had the the clock, the digital clock. Mm-hmm. And when that goes into like dim mode, it's eerie how well it works. Because most screens, if you just like turn them down, you're still seeing like the light the shining through the screen, mm-hmm. but the screen is basically, you know, the pixels are painted black. So you just see this like glowing dark thing. This doesn't do that. It's really amazing. It's it's like, it's like it's not on, but also the clock is showing, and it's showing in a way that is like very very dim and totally appropriate for a completely dark room in the middle of the night.
2: No, I should note that um, Amazon has something called the Echo Spot that is a, a, an alarm clock looking device that has Alexa, and then Lenovo is also going to be putting out some type of smart alarm clock that runs the Google Assistant. Mm-hmm. So I'm spotting a trend here, folks. Um, Tech companies want to be with you every single waking moment and sleeping moment. But I'm into this one for now. I think I'm going to have to write about it.
0: Screens on your bedside table. That's right. Would read. (laughs) (laughs) Would tweet. Says my editor.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I guess I have to. Get on (laughs) it. (laughs)
2: Um,
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Matt Simon.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's about time.
0: Um, Well, you had your own show for a
4: long time. I did. Well, yeah, it was video.
0: You could always revive it. We got this room.
2: Wow. Yeah. We know some audio engineers.
4: We could, yeah. Get these mics fixed first. I I don't mess around with any hiccups. I'm a bit of a diva.
0: (laughs) Um, Tell everybody how they can find you on the Twitter.
4: Oh, yeah. I don't really use it, but uh, it is uh, Mr. Matt Simon. Like M-R? M-R, yeah. Sorry. M-R. Matt Simon. Two T's. I don't mess around with that one T either. (laughs)
2: Like that other guy that used to work (laughs) for Wired. Like
4: that other guy.
0: Um, Lauren, you
4: are?
2: I'm at Lauren, good with an E at the end. I am at Pardesoteric.
0: I am at Snackfight. And you can bling all of us at the main hotline, which is at Gadget Lab. And we will be back next week.
4: I'm Reid Hoffman.
3: And I'm Aria Finger.
4: If you are interested in learning about how technology and humanity
0: can come together to make a better future, then Possible is for you. We invite ambitious builders and deep thinkers like Trevor Noah, Kara Swisher, Sam Altman, and so many more. Help us sketch out the brightest version of the future and what it will take to get there.
3: If you want to be part of the future today, then subscribe to Possible
1: wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all the difference.